Welcome to Beyond the Practice Room, the podcast that bridges the gap between music and medicine. We are your hosts, Kaylee Miller and Janice Ying. Each episode, we will explore a different topic in musicians' health and wellness. So we have a wonderful guest today. Danielle Marie Cozart-Steele is an amazing soprano conductor, researcher, and clinician based in the Midwest. And she has such a wide range of expertise, but we're really excited about her work with the trans voice. And with that being said, she's on the faculty for Indiana University East. She received her education from the University of Cincinnati, as well as other schools. And then she is doing some amazing work with the Transgender Singing Voice Conference, as well as with many other groups. And you should read more about her because she's amazing. But with that being said, short form bio, thank you so much for being with us, Danielle. Thank you. And since I didn't do the most thorough explanation of you and your bio, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, both as a singer and how you got into the work that you're currently doing? Absolutely. So like any, um, or I should say like most musicians, I'm a freelance musician and I make my living both singing and conducting and teaching. So um, I gig professionally as a soprano around the Midwest. And then I am also on faculty at Indiana University East, where I do voice and choir. I was formerly at Earlham College, which is a small liberal arts Quaker institution of about a thousand students. And that's where my research with trans voice really started. Um, my work with trans voice started back in 2013. And I started a doctorate uh, first at Ball State University in 2015. And then it was really apparent that the research I wanted to do um, was non-traditional and cutting edge, and I needed to be at an institution that supported that kind of research uh, and had more resources. And so I um, ended up getting recruited by Columbia University in New York City. I'm in the last year of my doctorate. I'm just getting ready to start my dissertation And my dissertation will be music as medicine um, broadly. And it's going to be music as a methodology by which to deliver speech training services to transgender voice users. Um, So that is what I'm focused on most heavily. And of course, um, my, my ethics surrounding making uh, the music the music classroom, the music experience, the choral community um, more safe, accepting, and affirming for transgender and non-binary people extends into all of the work I do. So whether it's in the academic setting at the university where I work or with my work in Cincinnati, um, I'm the director of the Young Professionals Choral Collective in Cincinnati, which is a 21 to 45, um, sorry, age 21 to age 45 group of young professionals who uh, aren't professional musicians, but love to make high quality music and socialize um, and connect in Cincinnati, um, really weaving the idea of diversity, equity, inclusion, and access into the foundation of how that group functions, right? So I work with um, trans voice users on my own, but then also try to make sure that any organization I'm a part of is, innately accessible and affirming for those individuals. That's fantastic. Just side note out of curiosity, does Columbia University have a specific music medicine doctorate or what kind of drew you to that program? No. So um, I, when I was at Ball State, initially I was there to get a conducting degree, um, you know, because I was far enough along in my career and in the field that in order to take the next steps professionally, I really needed to have a doctorate. Um, and I was uh, uh, really secure in my job. So I thought, well, I don't want to leave my 
job. I just need to make sure that I have the next degree that is going to help me be successful. So I was at Ball State for a year and um, they asked, they said, well, what do you want to research? You know, you have to do a dissertation. And I didn't have a focus, um, <laughs> but I mentioned to my um, my research methods uh my research methods prof, I said, well, you know, I have this trans student who is doing work in my chorus um, and she and I are collaborating on her voice and these are the approaches we're using and I'm reading a lot of speech language pathology literature. And he looked at me and he goes, that, that, that's what you need to write on. So for his class, I wrote a paper and he suggested I submit the paper to a conference um, and it was, what was it? QMU3, um, oh, I'm going to butcher the name of this conference and I feel so bad. It's such a great conference, but it's essentially like um, LGBT issues in music education. It's uh, gone oh, on every cool. other right every other year. At that time, I think it was in its third iteration. My paper got accepted. And um, while I was there, I met Dr. Randall Alsup from Teachers College, which is part of Columbia University. He was oh. a keynote speaker. And um, Randall and I just connected the way that we think philosophically about how our work affects the LGBT community really aligns. Um, and he also, uh, he wrote a book called Remixing the Music Classroom. And this book uh, really had affected me as an educator. So Randall and I connected and Randall essentially drew me away, you know, to <laughs> Columbia. Um, <laughs> And what made Columbia the right fit <clears throat> was um, that it wanted to offer me resources to to do my research. They don't have a music and medicine degree. That's up to me to make those connections. Sure. Um, but other places that had heard about my work and so were attempting to recruit me, right? So I start my work at Ball State. I get a little bit of... Um, like it's, it was a national conference, uh, I guess in the sense that like it was, but it was a very focused niche, right? Like, you know, mm -hmm. LGBT issues of music ed. So I get a little bit of like exposure and suddenly I have, you know, several universities who are like, we want <laughs> you to come here. Uh, Which and, is amazing for the record. Way to go. Totally. <laughs> right. Like I was like, oh yes. Okay. Stroke my ego. That's great. Um, <laughs> You know, and one of them said to me, oh, we're, you know, we're so excited at the possibility of having you. You can help us start the LGBT um, ally group in our music school. Ooh, and I was like, I'm sorry, isn't it like 2016? Don't, uh, uh, you don't have one yet. So um, <laughs> I wasn't interested in in going to a school that hadn't even formed a gay straight alliance. Yeah. Right. Um, I was like, no, I need to be at a school that, that wants to push the boundaries of what we already know, a school that's really invested in um, an interdisciplinary approach to the transgender voice. Um, so uh, that's why I went to Columbia. They, they could offer the most resources, the most guidance, and they were really excited to push the envelope. Hmm. That's amazing. That so, amazing. so I, I want to talk a little bit about um, what your like what work is done in terms of addressing uh, the needs of the trans community in terms of um, speaking and singing as they're going through that process. And obviously, I know that you're not a speech speech language pathologist, but um, I know you do extensive work with the community. So, kind of, if you could talk about the process. Um, or a little bit about the process of it, that would be amazing. Sure. So with the caveat that I am not an SLP, right? I very right. much, <clears throat> and I, I very much lead with that. I partner with SLPs. Sure. Um, I train with SLPs. I am not an SLP. Uh, but to just give a brief overview, uh, the, the approach to trans voice would start with an intake form, so the intake form would ascertain um, the user's perception of their voice, uh, 
if there were any issues that they were encountering on a daily basis that impeded the way they used their voice. And it would also assess for um, pathology, right? Mm -hmm. So um, someone who comes in for voice training may also have an underlying pathology, right? They may have a polyp on one of their vocal cords or they may, you know, um, and so it's really important to learn about that right up front, not because anyone wants to pathologize the trans community, but rather in order to um, assist people with the healthiest production of their voice, we really need to have all of the details before we get started. Um, And so once... Once an intake is done with a client, then all of the issues can be addressed, right? Everything from if there's an underlying pathology helping to ameliorate that to what are the client goals. And the simplest way to start with trans voice, the most, um, I would say, like quantitatively measurable way is to work through pitch. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. although... Pitch is absolutely not what defines how we perceive gender in the voice. It is something that you can point to either on a keyboard with a piano or you can measure electronically and you can say, look, you're singing at this frequency, right? Or you're speaking at this frequency and, um, you know, there is a each speaking voice each speaking voice has a range and so we can help someone move into a range most commonly associated with their gender um but from there of course what we have to address are really the big things that are less easily measurable um resonance really affects how we perceive the voice where the voice is placed um mm-hmm. You know, is it really nasal? Is it like Fran Drescher, right? Or is it like very wolfy? You know, is it more like a B Arthur? Um, And so teaching people how to manipulate their voices Mm -hmm. to achieve different resonance. um, And we know that we're also working with formants and overtones. Uh, Those are often not as easy to control unless someone is like a professional singer. And even then... Not necessarily. You can only do so much about the actual physical structures, right? The skull is the shape of the skull. Mm -hmm. The sinus cavities, the nose, all of that is, they have the shape they have. Um, So that's going to affect resonance in the voice. And then once you help a client uh, um, understand and manipulate their resonance, you move on to things like prosody, right? So the the rhythm and inflection of the speech. And that's where we get into the really fascinating dissection of gender, the perception of gender and whose perception matters. Um, you know, I have clients who uh, want to quote unquote pass, right? They want to live in the world and be perceived in the world as <clears throat> their gender Um, and so other folks interpretation of gender is very important to them. Um, Mm -hmm. I have some clients who distinctly desire to blur, uh, the lines between the binary and love living in that ambiguous zone. So their opinion of gender is what's foremost in their, their mind, um, And so as we look at prosody, as we look at inflection and intonation and all of these things that affect how we communicate, um, we have these really fascinating discussions about how um, two voices who are, which are radically different can both be perceived as say female. Interesting. Yeah. There's so many different ways to go from here, but I think, um, one of the things that I want to ask a little bit about is the fact that the the vocal folds are not super changeable in adults in the sense that if you are transitioning, I'm assuming, unless I'm totally missing the memo, uh, there's only so much change structurally that's possible unless you're taking mm-hmm. testosterone. But so what you're doing is once again, training people a new range yeah. and support in that range if they want mm-hmm. that. Yeah. So the reason that I think singing is such an effective approach to the speaking voice is because our speaking voice is something that we're so acclimated to, that's so habitual, that often changing 
it directly can feel artificial, can um, trigger lots of dysphoria, can feel like we're kind of messing with someone's soul, right? Mm -hmm. The speaking voice um, is one of the first ways that we interact with the world. And it tells people a lot about who we are. People make assumptions about um, our gender, where we're from, our education level, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and among a number of other things, just from an initial, hi, my name is, right? Yeah, sure. So when you use singing, <clears throat> you are, it's like a one step remove from the speaking voice. And that's good, not just, I think, from a psychological perspective, but um, also you step away from the habits in the speaking voice. And so you're able to create new habits that then you can transfer back to the speaking voice. And the one that I'll give you an example of is legato, the idea of singing in a smooth, connected fashion. Uh, Legato is one of the fundamental concepts of bel canto singing. And so to be able to introduce my students to music that requires them to understand how fundamental the breath is in supporting the voice, how to link musical syllables together in an expressive way with a, you know, an open, healthy throat. Um, And then to say, okay, now we can apply that to speaking. Uh, The other things that are helpful is that singing can um, really help stretch the range. And often in singing, we have to cross what are called registers. So Mm -hmm. even uh, lay folks have usually heard the terms head voice and chest voice. Um, Often people know the word falsetto, which is the the sound we associate with like very young boy sopranos, Um, that high, fluty, breathy, kind of off the voice sound. And so being able to use music to cross between and among the registers um, helps my clients with vocal flexibility and also control. So if they can access, uh, if they can access their falsetto, and falsetto is a term I use really sparingly, by the way, um, mm-hmm. because of its gendered implications. But for right now, just to understand, to, so we can understand the type of sound I'm talking about, right? If someone can access their falsetto, a trans woman can access their falsetto. And then they can pull that falsetto feeling and sound down really far into their lower range. They can start to have access to different acoustic qualities in their speaking voice. And by doing that, they may not raise their fundamental frequency, their, their, the base pitch at which they're speaking. They, might, they may not be able to raise that a ton, but they can change the quality a lot through that type of vocal education. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned something earlier um, when we were talking about, you know, generally how uh, they the trans community starts um, training. But you, you did mention some pathologies that you can find in like when you start first start working with your clients. Um, so I was kind of wondering, like, are, are polyps something that you commonly find? I mean, I know they're common in general, um, especially if you have. Um, high frequencies of like vocal strain, for example, uh, because these polyps usually develop out of friction. Um, But I was just wondering, since um, some of these people don't go through formal training as they're, you know, trying to transition or, you know, try before, even before their transition. So I was just kind of curious if that was something that you commonly find or what other pathologies you encounter. Ah, so again, um, I can speak to this only as an observer, but not an SLP or someone who can do diagnosis. Uh, What I have noticed and what my friends in the field have noticed is that especially clients who have done a lot of kind of DIY voice training at home, um, Mm -hmm. and then they come into the SLP setting and they want voice training, usually what they're dealing with is extreme fatigue and weakness. And um, maybe in the case of a trans woman, she might be experiencing excessive popping and cracking in her sound. 
Um, she may not be able to uh, have reliable onset. So when she attempts to start the sound, it doesn't start um, when she wants it to, if at all. And so this really comes from misuse and strain because when trans women who are doing a lot of DIY vocal work are working on their voices, there's the tendency to raise the larynx and to kind of really extremely tilt <clears throat> that um, that mechanism to achieve higher pitches. And then they are frequently speaking much higher than cisgender females are. Oh, so yeah. oh. right now, let's see, if I were to just keep talking and I'm talking on like this pitch forever. Oh, really low. I'm talking, I'm talking at an F sharp, right? So I'm talking at an F sharp three. That's not very high. And I'll have clients that come in talking up here, really high, very off the breath and very disaffected. And so they're speaking, you know, uh, three quarters of an octave higher than I do. Sure, and, sure. and so having someone um, being able to <clears throat> train the voice so that they can access a range that is long term feasible, healthy and authentic for them is part of what's so important in this work right right that's amazing so and that's with I, sorry and i was gonna say with um with folks who are not on hormones right who would identify as non-binary or as trans men who want a lower voice um often that is is um swelling of the vocal cords that is induced by like extremely like pressure you know talking really low for extended periods of time yeah. pushing and so that that um that results in a lot of vocal fatigue and then they too have uh problems you know they'll, they'll be chronic hoarseness right so those are the things that we look to um assist our clients with as we go through vocal training that all, yeah, that all makes sense. Uh, one of the questions I have with this is that the very nature of choir or choral music is very gendered. And so how, just in the sense of soprano, alto, tenor, bass, so how are you starting mm -hmm. to disrupt or change that whole, I think, dynamic in whatever groups you're working with, whether it's um, young adults right. or adults or, you know, whatever group of people you're working with? Um, so yeah, my gosh, this is such a rabbit hole that we could go down. Um, and what I would like to address first, I think, is that the gendered terminology of the choral rehearsal is so easy to change. Um, and without changing any other part of the rehearsal, simply the way that we introduce ourselves and speak to our singers when we're giving directives is part of making the choral classroom safe and affirming. Now, of course, we also need to change what outfits we we are wearing. Um, and and I would argue that you know looking at what outfits we wear has is is not just about gender, but also about access and classism and elitism in classical music. But that's like a whole other podcast. Uh, right. <laughs> um, so the idea that, <clears throat> excuse me, the idea that all men are in tuxes, right. Um, and all women are in those horrible, ill-fitting black dresses that oh, no, do yeah. not flatter anyone's body, no matter what, right. what gender you are. The tense. Like flashback to high school choir. Right. And that's like, that's some acute trauma right there. <laughs> um, those, you know, so the outfits are another super easy thing to change, right? So if instead of saying, um, okay, I want, you know, the ladies on this side of the room and the men on that side, as we do uh, some type of exercise, right? You simply say sopranos and altos and tenors and basses, boom, easy change and completely accurate. Um, the, you know, the other thing too, is when you are doing uh, voice placement, um, really stressing the idea that Yes, we uh, have um, cisgender male sopranos. We have um, we have trans women who are altos. We have non-binary folks who sing tenor. We have um, we have uh, trans women who are basses. The idea that voice and gender 
and or so the voice part and gender can be two entirely separate things is something that you as an instructor have to internalize and then you also have to model for your choir yeah right and so mm-hmm. i very much you know if i have a trans woman whose voice has this fabulous robust bass voice um and that's where she feels the most empowered singing. It's my job to support her singing voice in all of the ways, right? Um, and so celebrating her voice uh, alongside the other bass voices in my choir is something that's, for me, really easy to do. Um, especially because for some of my trans clients, voice change, for whatever reason, isn't... Um, I don't want to say it's not possible, but maybe there are so many barriers to um, accessing a voice they might want that I don't want to put any additional pressure on them. You know, if someone is a trans woman in my choir, I don't automatically assume that she is going to sing alto or that she's going to sing second soprano. Um, And so really letting that be up to the student in the ensemble is important. And then of course, you know, if a student is really like pressurizing their instrument and trying to sing super low and you know it's going to be unhealthy, that's a great time for um, both a, a really compassionate one-on-one conversation with a student to find a way that you can support them. Um, and that may mean that they get to sit at the edge of the tenor section, but they sing alto, right? So they're like right on the edge. So socially mm-hmm. they can be a part of the, you know, a part of the section where they feel more comfortable, but then vocally they can join the altos. Or in some cases I have written a part that um, encompasses the, you know, it's like, okay, whatever tenor notes you can sing, you get to sing all those tenor notes. But when you can't, um, I'm either going to pop you up an octave or I'm going to add a harmony tone that works, or I'm going to put you on the alto part for a couple of pitches and then you get to go back down. And that's something that I can do really quickly for a student um, without even telling the rest of the choir, right? I just grab their piece of music and a pencil and tick, 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 you know, circle the pitches they need Mm -hmm. to sing or write some in and boom, there they go. So um, yeah, those are, those are some ways that we can support our trans students in choir among a, a million other but I've talked a long time so no that's that's amazing and I'll let Janice come in for a moment but I so out of curiosity what is a new dress code that's one question and question number two is are composers starting to realize this and change the way they're writing choir or choral music I would say there are a handful of composers and I would know I know this because um, I run the transgender singing voice conference which was started back in 2017. Uh, Really, it was, you know, I started it, but I started it for a group of educators who were interested in becoming better allies. It wasn't intended to be a conference with presenters. It was more like a bunch of, you know, well-meaning cis allies getting together to share experiences and best practices. and, And it just blossomed into something really beautiful. So at the second iteration in 2019, we had um, composers submit to have their work, um, as part of a a reading session at the conference. And I think we ended up with, oh, maybe 20 different submissions. And the way that composers are, uh, writing in regard to approaching the trans voice is usually to label voice parts as like high, medium, and low or to write for equal voicing, meaning the voice part could be sung in any octave and it doesn't matter. So the melody could be sung down to octaves and it's still the melody, that's fine. Um, And so the way that music functions, the way that harmony functions is simply, it's simply being reconsidered, right? The aesthetics of of choral music are being reconsidered. Um, some folks study extended voice techniques. I know, um, Juanita Marchland, uh, in Canada is looking at extended voice techniques and trans voice. Um, that's not something I'm terribly, uh, educated about, but, um, is certainly something to explore. Um, and composers also, uh, sometimes 
it's traditional SATB, but the subject matter is carefully curated to be welcoming and affirming for trans voice users. Um, other composers are writing music instead of SA, sorry, soprano, alto, tenor, bass. Instead of SATB, they're writing like AATTB because there are so many trans folks whose voices really kind of sit in the middle that you need lower melody lines and you need more harmony parts, but harmony parts that don't go super low. So having alto one, alto two, tenor one, tenor two, and then a bass or a baritone part um, is how, for example, the Los Angeles Transgender Chorus has handled selecting some of its music, right? So, and for that music, you can actually um, go back hundreds of years and find madrigals that were written for that particular arrangement of voices. Right. That's amazing. Oh, and then the dress code. I'm yeah. assuming that you just give options for people to wear whatever they want. Absolutely. So um, when I was at Earlham College, our chorus had um, essentially a binary female and male options, right? So a black dress or a black suit. And then we had a non-binary option that was um, a tunic and uh, loose fitting pants. And so that was a more formal way to handle things. Other choruses I know have simply said, look, we're going to maintain the, the binary and, you know, dresses for women, tuxes for men, but anybody who wants to wear a tux can be fitted for a tux. And well, you know, they can wear a tux and anybody who wants a dress can be fitted for a dress. As long as you're wearing the black hose and the one and a half inch nondescript <laughs> black heels, you're fine. <laughs> right. And then some choruses are going entirely away from the formal option, um, which in many ways I think is great because it, it kind of decolonizes um, the sure. choral experience. Right. So some choirs for, for example, um, I know a good buddy of mine, Dr. Jace Saplan in Hawaii is having his choruses um his the the dress has some traditional Hawaiian elements and everyone is dressed in the same outfit. Uh, other choruses are going to a really casual model. It's like wear your chorus swag, right? So you wear your zip up or your <laughs> t-shirt that has the chorus name and logo on it and you wear khakis or you wear jeans. So there are loads of ways to make the outfit thing a non-issue. Or you can just say all black, head to toe, um, and whatever you wear, right? You know, just like you can you can put out guidelines and then you let your course members pick what they feel flatters their bodies and makes them the most comfortable. That makes sense. That's fantastic. Awesome. Yeah, that does make a ton of sense. So, um, I, I, I mean, you've done so much different things in your career and your portfolio is like insane. Um, but could you talk a little bit about like kind of the research that you've done over the years um, and working with like the trans community and then also like, you know, working one-on-one -on -one with clients, um, you know, you can definitely provide a very personalized experience. Um, but when you're working with a choir, like are there certain things, obviously everyone's on their different path, but like, are there certain things that you do as a group with choirs that um, can kind of help facilitate or lay down some of that groundwork for someone who's transitioning or kind of trying to improve upon things. I know that's a couple of different questions. Yes. Um, so I'll be on. now talking for three hours. Um, <laughs> please get a coffee. Great. I've got time. <laughs> we don't have so, time, but we have time. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so, oh shoot. What was the very beginning of your question, Janice? Um, uh, the research ah, that you've done. I'm going to start with that. So yeah. uh, I should have mentioned this in the beginning. I work at the Voice Lab in Chicago, which was founded by Liz Jackson Hearns. And um, Liz and I kind of started doing our work with trans clients um, at the same time and knew of one another, but didn't meet really until 2020, which is kind of hilarious because our work has paralleled one another Um and Liz has written a fantastic book called One Weird Trick, which I now use in all of my sessions. Um, so the work that I have done, my research started very informally. I had a trans student come to me in 2013 and she said, I want to start um, dressing 
as my preferred gender in class. I'd really like to know that you support me. And it was like, yeah, absolutely. You know, whatever you need. And if somebody gives you trouble, you send them to me, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, kind of being uh, overprotective choir mom is where this all started. I just wanted to make sure that all of my kids felt safe in my classroom, right? And mm -hmm. so she was singing bass at the time. And the next semester came to me and said, well, I want to sing alto. And I was like, brava, you may sing alto. I, you are moved. Move today. That is fantastic. Well, that's wonderful and good and affirming, except she didn't have access to any kind of upper register. And for someone who has a like a super nice bass voice, it's usually very common that they have access to this higher, flutier register and they can sing, um, you know, decently, decently well in that upper register. And she just couldn't access it. And it was like, oh, okay. So let's go take some voice lessons, right? And, and I didn't know what I was doing. I was just like, I will help you make noises up there and we will see how they go, <laughs> you know? And, and the great thing is, you know, she welcomed me into her journey with so much graciousness and grace. And I really wanted to simply give her every tool that I had in my toolbox, right? So it's like, okay, will a wrench work? No. Okay. Do we need a hammer? No. Okay. What about a chainsaw? Let's do this. And kitchen sink. Right. And so um, we worked together for the entirety of her time at Earlham. She was there for four years and I just kept notes. I was like, did this work? Great. Why do I think that worked? You know, and, and um, so the research wasn't formalized. It was just a notebook full of my observations of this student's lessons. And as my work with her started to come out to the students at Earlham, you know, cause she chats with her friends and she joined my voice class and she sang, um, other students started to come to me, you know? And so suddenly <clears throat> here we are with my, my tenor one in my men's, um, barbershop quartet. And my first tenor had been having some vocal issues and comes to me and says, well, I'm trans. And he had auditioned for the group and never disclosed that he was trans and gotten in. And I was like, oh, whoa, that's awesome. You know, but yeah. he, you know, again, yeah, totally. right. He was having issues with his register. And so we, um, we start, I started work with him and, and it, it, um, it kind of snowballed, right? So at one point, I think my choral program was like 20% trans and non-binary students, which gave me this wide um, array of voices. I had folks on hormones. I had folks not on hormones. I had um, I had non-binary uh, individuals who wanted to, um, for this, you know, for the sake of not triggering their dysphoria really wanted to sing tenor or alto too. You know, range was very, very important to them. Um, and so the great thing about starting my doctorate is that I was able to systematize the work I was doing with these trans individuals and and to really follow the, the um, to follow the threads as it were. It's like, okay, what's common? Um, you know, okay, so we're going to be using size and we're going to be using, um, slides and glides, and we're going to be, uh, doing one note onset exercises. And so, although every trans voice is different and unique, there are some techniques that are general, generalizable to these voices and being able to help with facilitating a healthy speaking and singing voice. So that's where my research mm. is going right now. Um, and I, I have been working with um, the SLP community in, <clears throat> in looking at um, how can we take traditional SLP um, approaches to trans voice, which involve a lot of speaking exercises and, devise a protocol that incorporates music and see if that affects the outcomes. And so are our clients happier with their voices? Do they feel like they have more control? Um, are they being perceived more frequently as their preferred gender? Are they being gendered correctly on the phone? 
Um, and so that's what my dissertation will explore is devising this uh, hybrid protocol for the approach to the voice. That's amazing. I guess one of the questions I want to make sure we do address is have you as an educator encountered transphobia from your, I'd say your scholastic community of other professors? Have you seen it at the different colleges or institutions you work for? And how, this is, you know, another trifecta of questions. How can we do better? (laughs) Oh, yeah. I, um, I get really salty about transphobia in the music community uh people assume that the music community is just like completely affirming and totally open and um so that actually makes us more blind to our biases because we assume we're doing the best of anybody right yeah and so i'll give you an example When I started the Transgender Singing Voice Conference in 2017, I sent out personal emails to every voice and choir prof in the tri-state area, right? I was like, I'm going to, you know, I want you to know this is happening. I'm going to recruit you and your students. And and I got an email back from a well-known voice teacher at a very famous institution who said... I already know enough about the voice. I don't need you to teach me how to train transgender individuals. Um, We can approach them the same way we approach everyone else. And there's essentially like, there's nothing that you have to teach me that I could learn. Except the email wasn't that nice. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) I, um, I was flabbergasted and I think I sent a response to this person that was, that was simply like, you know, you may have trans students in your studio and not even know that they're trans. And because of your um, approach to this issue, they may not feel safe in your studio. So I, I would ask you to reconsider attending the conference. Um, This is not about changing your vocal technique, because actually, you know, I'm a classically trained soprano from a conservatory, right? Cincinnati Conservatory trained me in um, 19th century bel canto technique. And that (laughs) is the approach I use. Uh, I am not here to, um, I'm not here to like burn down the academy. Um, So his, I think he was defensive because he perceived it as me saying, me or the conference saying like, you know, these time-tested, revered techniques are no longer applicable and, and you don't know what you're doing. And I was like, oh, contraire, my friend, you have this wonderful toolbox, but you don't know necessarily how to use it in the service of these students. I want you to come and, and hang out with us as we learn how to creatively apply these tools and make these tools more accessible. He was not having it. Um, so there's that kind of like really overt transphobia and resistance um and some of the more like covert stuff that is a little insidious is when someone says um well we're just serving the art so you know if if it's not about what we wear it's not about the tux i just don't understand why this person is so, you know, this person being their, their trans student, I just don't understand why they need to wear a dress. This is about Mozart, you know, yeah. and you're like, <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> I'm pretty sure they can still sing Mozart exceptionally well and wear a dress, right? <laughs> um, I think Mozart you know, would probably so, like that, frankly. I think he would like, honestly, right? Totally. Right? Yeah. Um, so, so I think too, sometimes there's a, there's like a perception that we want to make a mockery of the institution as it were. Right. And I, I think that comes from the way that trans folks are often portrayed in the media. Right. So like when you see a trans woman, for example, on a TV show or in a movie, um, 
it's really hyper-focused on her appearance and her doing things like her hair and putting on lipstick and putting on heels. And then she stumbles in the heels, you know, like, teehee, look, she's learning to become a woman. Uh, and I think that truly this, you know, even if the intention, even if it's this in, well-intentioned approach to like showing a trans person's journey that often uh, gives the impression that, um, like trans women aren't real women and that they're just kind of going to stumble through womanhood. And so I think, you know, these choir teachers who are like, yeah, my, you know, this trans woman in my choir can't wear a dress. I think they, they are more worried about someone in the audience, um, like having an opinion like, oh, doesn't that look funny, right? And right. In, in truth, our audiences are not scanning the choir face by face to be like, I wonder right. what genitals that person has, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, in truth, our our audience members are reading our program notes <laughs> and right, sometimes surreptitiously texting and not right. thinking about what the choir is wearing at all. Um, you know, so I think it's, there's a hypersensitivity on the part of the choir director about how changing something that is a long held tradition will make them the choir director look right. So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of ego wrapped up in choir directors that won't change their approach to their trans students. And then of course you run into, um, the music educators or choir directors who, you know, who are, um, really interested in their students' eternal souls. Oh no! <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> right. So I was giving a workshop in uh, Louisiana, and I knew I was going to encounter this. Um, I was working at a Southern Baptist institution, and one of my one of the students there, who was a music ed student, raised her hand, and she said. I really want to be a good ally to my students. You know, I know that they deal with things like, um, you know, there's a higher percentage of trans students who attempt suicide or who suffer from depression or homelessness. And you could tell that like her heart just ached for that. And she said, but what about saving their souls? And I was like, oh, thank God. I spent the whole plane ride thinking about this. Um, <laughs> right. And so... I was able to look at her and and look at at this this educator who is wrestling with how her religion affects her ability to be a good ally and I was able to say look you're their teacher you're responsible for keeping their bodies and their voices safe right so you need to make sure that you have a social environment where they can function without experiencing dysphoria harassment or bullying and you need to be able to educate them um, about how to safely use their voice. Um, I said, that's your job. You're not a psychologist, you're not a doctor, and you're not a priest. So my approach to those folks is to simply say, um, you, you need to let, and I'm going to say, like, assuming you believe in God, you need to let God do God's work. You need to be a music teacher, right? It's not your job. To save their soul, because that's a, I would say that's a pretty big, um, that's a pretty big lift for you. Oh yeah. Right. That's a, that's assuming a lot of responsibility here. <laughs> Stick to teaching quarter notes and making sure that your student isn't getting bullied and you're going to be doing more work for God than you realize. Right. Um, and more work in the life of that student than if you tried to, you know, quote unquote, save their souls. And again, that's a rabbit hole we could go down. Yeah. Um, but I find amazing. that's a really good you, answer right. to a problematic question. Yep. Well-intentioned yes. religion often has, um, some disastrous consequences in my students' lives. And I don't have a lot of patience for that. Yeah. But I recognize that if I alienate educators along the way, because, you know, I'm out there doing workshops, like, here's how you make your choir program safe and affirming, right? That's what I do. I go all over the country doing this. If I'm out there educating or educating, alienating an entire generation of music educators by making them feel like crap about themselves, I'm not mm -hmm. doing anyone any favors, right? So. Right. 
Right. I, you know, my response to that girl could have been a whole lot more um, intolerant and a whole lot more impatient, but that's, that would have only momentarily satisfied me. Right. I could have said something really snarky, um, you know, or, uh, and it would have done a dis, sorry. And it would have done a huge disservice to any trans student she ever had. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So I have to imagine her future trans students and be like, what do you kids five years from now need me to say? And that's what I need to say. I don't need to service my own, you know, um, I don't need to like feed my own ego here by saying something witty or snarky or arguing the point. I don't need to argue whether or not God is real with you, you know, um, or God's opinion on trans people. What I need to do is give you the tools to be a good and effective ally. That's, the end. That's amazing. So with that being said, I want to make sure that we let you get off into your busy day and your life. Is there anything we did not talk about that you want to mention? And if not, where can people find you both? Oh, okay, so we'll start with the internet. internet. My website is daniellemariesteel.com. And there you can access um, my uh, my publications. You can see what other projects I'm involved in. Uh, you can book me to come do workshops and you can check out all of the other things I do in the musical world. And if you want to find me corporeally, uh, I teach in Richmond, Indiana, which is right on the Ohio border. I'm at IU East, but, um, my main, my main gig right now is the Young Professionals Choral Collective in Cincinnati. And so I'm in Cincinnati half the week hanging out with those lovely folks. Um, and so that's where I am right now. And then during the summers, I'm usually in New York City doing my doctorate at Columbia University. World traveler. Yeah, right? With a toddler. <laughs> amazing, <laughs> amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, you know, sharing your um, immense wealth of knowledge with us. Like I, I learned a ton today. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is oh, amazing. It was absolutely my pleasure. And thank you so much for putting this podcast yes. together. Oh, of course. Yeah. Thank you, Danielle. So that's our show. Special thanks to Abby Swidler for composition and performance. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others. Maybe write us a review. You can find us at beyondthepracticeroompodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening.